Lisa Airy is someone whom I believe is a leading expert in one of the oldest unsolved missing person cases in the United States. This is the story of the 1913 disappearance of nine-year-old Catherine Winters from Newcastle, Indiana. More than a hundred years ago, a little nine-year-old girl disappeared in Newcastle, Indiana. Her name was Catherine Winters. She was the daughter of a dentist in town, William Asa Winters. His wife, Bird Ritter Winters, was Catherine's stepmother. Catherine's biological mother had passed away from tuberculosis a few years earlier. March 20th, 1913 was the Thursday before Easter. Catherine and her little cousin, Jane, who was five, Jane's mommy, May, Bird, and Grandma Ritter all decided to go out and about. Grandma Ritter and Jane and Catherine went down to the west side of town where they used to live. Catherine wanted to sell pins and cloverine salve and needles for a church project. May and Bird went on downtown to buy wallpaper for the new house they'd just finished building at 311 North 16th Street. Jane and Catherine were stopped at the Helen Stretch house at 218 North 7th. Helen Stretch was another little childhood friend, and her daddy had just built the playhouse for him in the backyard, so they stopped there to play. Grandma Ritter went to another neighbor and started chatting. The three of them got separated, at least for a little while. Catherine went on up the alley. Her cousin Jane reported that the last time she ever saw Catherine, she was walking through the alley up toward Vine Street. Catherine never made it home that day for lunch, and by 5, 6 p.m. that night, everybody else had. Pretty soon, Bird called the police and reported that the gypsies had snatched Catherine right from the streets of Newcastle. A huge search was started. Her father, they called him Doc, Doc Winters, borrowed a couple of the new cars from the car dealership. The police got on board in the cars, and they all drove and followed that gypsy caravan that was accused of taking Catherine. They went right out 38 East. It was known as the Hagerstown Pike. Meanwhile, it had started raining. And this rain is significant and important to the story because it didn't stop raining for days. And that rain became the biggest flood in the history of the Midwest. Hundreds of people from Indiana to Ohio, they were killed. So you can imagine the downpour that these two carloads of police were driving in. Well, they found the gypsy caravan. The gypsy caravan was searched. There was no Catherine found. The two cars made their way back to Newcastle. And then, strangely enough, between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning, Doc Winters persuaded the group that maybe they just didn't look enough. So they made a second trip in that pouring rain, searched the gypsy caravan yet again, still didn't find her. The exasperated gypsy king, his name was Adolf John Spires, was very frustrated and was quoted as saying, don't you think I have enough children in my gypsy caravan? He had nine of his own. Very soon, Doc Winters began to offer a $100 reward for anyone who could find Catherine. Adolph John Spires offered $1,000. 
That's how sure he was of his own innocence. He was a very frustrated man. Within a few days, the whole town of Newcastle got on board to help search for Catherine. Some of the biggest employers, the Maxwell Car Company, the Jesse French Piano Company, Who's Your Kitchen Cabinet Company, they all stopped work. They had all their employees leave at a specific time. I believe it was on March 24th to go search for Catherine. And yes, it was still raining. They searched through basements. They've searched through cellars. They searched when they could through outhouses. Most of the houses still had outhouses at the time. They searched through freshly plowed gardens. They left no stone unturned. Pretty soon, They began to suspect the Whistler family. That's Catherine's biological mother. They were distantly related to the gentleman who painted Whistler's mother, and there was money involved. And there was a suspicion that perhaps someone from Catherine's family had come down from Wisconsin, where they lived, and taken her back to Wisconsin with them. The powers that be in Newcastle decided they were going to put together a citizens' committee in order to facilitate this search for Catherine. They had some money. The police, of course, were cooperating. They used this money to hire detectives. First was Mr. Webster. Mr. Webster was charged with investigating the Catherine Winters' disappearance first. He investigated the Whistler family. He exonerated them, said no, all their alibis check out. He interviewed and investigated again the gypsies. He exonerated the gypsies. The only people that he could not, I don't even think he interviewed them yet, was the Winters family themselves. Fairly soon, though, within a few weeks, Mr. Webster was complaining because he wasn't getting paid for his work, not the way he thought he should be paid. So Mr. Webster went on his on his way. The next one detective that was hired was Alfred Lunt. And Mr. Lunt did exactly the same thing. Now, he also went to investigate the gypsies yet again because Doc Winters kept insisting that he do so. They kind of got into it, as reported in many newspapers. Mr. Lunt kept saying, I don't believe the gypsies did it. Mr. or Doc Winters kept saying, go investigate the gypsies. So he did. But when Mr. Lunt returned from investigating the gypsies and then again, the whistlers, he said, I am going, he was quoted in many newspapers, including not only the Newcastle newspapers, but by this time, this had become a nationwide popular case. Chicago newspapers, Indianapolis newspapers, St. Louis newspapers, the Hearst newspaper chain had gotten on board. There were thousands and thousands of dollars worth of rewards offered now for the return of Catherine Winters. But Mr. Lunt said, no, the gypsies didn't do it. I can tell you they didn't do it. The whistlers didn't do it. And by August, the committee that had gotten together to facilitate the investigation was running out of money. And Mr. Lunt, he didn't stick around either, also complaining that he just wasn't really getting paid the value of his work. So things calmed down a little bit by fall. There wasn't a lot that of new developments in the investigation. That that was an election year. And by November, pretty much focus had shifted to the election and away from the investigation 
in the newspapers. Headlines, the election was grabbing more headlines than the disappearance was. Before that, however, before the election, James Balslog, the chief of police, Kersey Kirk, the sheriff, and Alfred Lunt had all indicated they believed that Doc Winters and Bird Winters and other members of the household knew more than they were telling the police. For example, the investigation was not conducted in the same manner that modern detectives conduct investigations today. When Catherine first went missing, those detectives met inside the winner's house to have conferences. The people inside the house, Doc Winners, Bird Winners, they took in rumors. One of the rumors they took in, his name was Ross Cooper. They were all there and overheard what the detectives were saying. Doc Winners and Bird Winners even directed well, we think this person might be a suspect. We think that person might be a suspect. They were directly involved in the investigation of the, their own daughter. Another difference was whenever someone w- thought that they had a clue, it was advertised in the local newspapers, call the winner's house and be sure and tell the winner's family about this new clue. It didn't go to a de- detective. It went to the winner's family. So by August or September or so, the prosecutor, Mr. Evans, had had enough. He said, listen, I think the investigation needs to be turned inward to the Winters family themselves. A grand jury was called. There were more than 100 people slated to testify. Of course, most grand jury, as if not all grand jury proceedings are secret, So we will never know what went on in the grand jury. It was presided over by Judge Ed Jackson. Now, the reporters from Chicago, from Indianapolis, from Newcastle, and other surrounding areas, they would wait outside where the grand jury was going on. So the information that we have comes from those reporters. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. 
Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. They told who was going into the room to testify. Of course, now we're not going to know what they testified, but pretty much we know who was called in to testify. A couple of people who were called in to testify, we need to take note of. First of all, Catherine's six-year-old brother, Frankie, was called to testify. This really irritated Doc. Many newspaper reporters wrote colorful stories about Doc's reaction. Doc tried to persuade the powers that be to not make Frankie testify. Please, he begged, don't do this to my son. Don't make him testify. But they did anyway. And while Frankie was in testifying, Doc Winters was screaming and yelling up and down the street. I can't believe they're making Frankie testify. I'm so upset. This is so wrong. Now, Remember that for later on. Another person that testified at the grand jury, these newspaper reporters refused to identify. They identified about 30 people who testified, but this one person who testified, they did not put his name in the paper. And for the life of me, I could not find in any of the newspapers why, but they said, they did say that his testimony could be key to the case, was very, very important. This man was never identified. So that was in October. After about the first 30 witnesses testified, Judge Ed Jackson became impatient. And he said, he banged his gavel and he said, I'm going to stop these proceedings. There is nothing new that we are learning from these testimonies that we haven't already read in hundreds and hundreds of newspapers. So we're not going to go forward with this grand jury. And so he pretty much guaranteed that he couldn't learn anything new because he stopped the proceedings. So that was October. We go into November. We have some um, face changes. Instead of the really aggressive, experienced prosecutor, H.H. H. Evans, we have elected a kind of a newbie prosecutor, Walter Myers. Walter Myers, according to the newspaper articles, was very mm, not as aggressive as H.H. H. Evans and had a lot of trouble making charges stick. He was a young, recent graduate and kind of shy. And I heard him described as bespectacled. <laughs> so... The case pretty much quiets down. There's a film, however. PR company had come to Newcastle to tape the up-and-coming new city. They taped lots of the new industry. They taped also the day that the industry was let out to go search for Catherine. There are shots of that on this tape. And the film became something for the businessman's committee to take from city to city to further advertise Catherine's disappearance. Now, somehow that film went from the businessman's committee to Doc Winters himself. Doc Winters and Bird Winters were now taking the film around the state of Indiana to show in theaters. They were B.F. Keith theaters specifically, and they drew large crowds and they received a large portion of the admission fees. Now, it was purported that those fees were going to aid for the disappearance of Catherine Winters and to help hunt for Catherine Winters. The money was supposed to go back to the businessmen's committee, 
Several articles indicate that did not happen. Very quietly, the Businessmen's Committee had hired a third detective. Now, this name, man's name was Robert Abel. He was from the Lewis Wine Detective Agency. Lewis Wine had been in business for decades and was a top-notch detective agency. Detective Abel was also kind of quirky. He smoked a big, long pipe. He had funny hats that he changed as his mood changed. He had a fancy new machine they called a dictaphone, and he took a lot of heat in the press about his tall, skinny appearance. Memorial Day weekend, 1914, he got a tip from someone in Illinois. Doc's family was from Illinois, and he was a University of Chicago graduate, dental school graduate. And he had some brothers who also were still dentists in Illinois. Robert Abel got himself a writ so that he could search the winter's home. Now, during that 600-man search back in the spring of 1913, somehow, not sure that house ever got searched. There's no record and no witness account of that house ever got getting searched except for the furnace. In May of 1913, ashes were sifted in the winner's home, but there was no other thorough investigation until Robert Abel on Memorial Day weekend. Now, that particular weekend, Doc and Bird were out showing the film in Terre Haute. So Abel got his search warrant with some other police members and a reporter from one of the local newspapers. Knocked on the door, Grandma Ritter. Bird's mom was there with Frankie, and she let them in. That group dug and dug and dug and dug in the basement of that house eight feet down. And eventually, they found a red sweater, Catherine's size, um, that had, it was, it appeared to have burn marks on it. They also found a t-shirt, a man's t-shirt with blood stains, and they found a matching hair ribbon. And they found letters, suspicious letters, written from one member of the house to another member of the house. And in several newspapers, the author of the letters was identified as Bird. Arrest warrants were issued for Doc and for Bird for the boarder, Ross Cooper, because they thought that the T-shirt belonged to him as it was pinned up on one sleeve. Ross Cooper had one arm. A fourth arrest warrant was issued for little five-year-old Jane's father, Cece Hyde. He also was there the morning of March 20th, 1913. Not sure of his location during the morning when the women walked for for the wallpaper. Not sure where he was that morning, but an arrest warrant was issued for his arrest. Lo and behold, he'd already moved to California. They could not locate Cece Hyde. They did, however, arrest Doc and Bird and Ross. Since it was a holiday weekend, they had to come in through the misdemeanor court, the lower court, because none of the judges were available to bring them in through the criminal court. The next Tuesday, when the courts opened back up, the original charges were dropped, and then they were technically rearrested on conspiracy to commit a felony. So Detective Abel was trying to interview them, separate the witnesses, and interview them. However, the winners and Cooper were able to post bond. And so Abel did not get the interrogation that he wanted 
done. Abel continued to persuade the newbie prosecutor, Walter Myers, please up these charges to murder. Please up these charges to murder. With the evidence, the sweater, the shirt, the ribbons, the letters, Abel said he also had some recordings of the mother and the grandmother that were very important. Walter Myers would not up those charges. Well, then the evidence, they went to inspect the evidence, which had been stored in a safe in the mayor's office. And when they opened that safe door, the evidence was gone. Nobody knew where it went. But before it disappeared, a local chemist had identified the blood on the T-shirt as human blood that he suspected was more than a year old. Pretty convincing and pretty amazing that it disappeared, if you ask me. So, of course, then Myers wasn't about to file those charges. He didn't have a body. He didn't have evidence. He had nothing but the word of the detective, Abel. Now, you can discount that it was the same opinion that the police chief had. It was the same opinion that Kersey Kirk, the sheriff, had. It was the same opinion that the second detective had. I mean, we have a lineup of detectives who are telling officials that the people who are responsible and need to be charged are the father, the stepmother, and the one-armed border. But Myers doesn't do it. He does not file the papers. There's several stories that tell describe in detail, Myers is in his office contemplating. He types up one copy. He rips it up. He types up another copy. He rips it up. He types up a third copy while Detective Abel and the crowd, a bevy of reporters are waiting on the other side of his office door. Finally, Myers leaves the third copy on his desk, marches out the door, and doesn't even look back. And Abel's like, what, 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 what? Where are you going? Sign those murder charges. Myers didn't do it. So Detective Abel quit the case. He said, I'm done. That's it. I, you won't file those murder charges. I'm out of here. And Abel leaves Newcastle and he never returns. So again, very quietly, the businessmen's committee, they have a group of people. One of them is a Newcastle police officer, Thomas Romine. One of them is the, dep- the, town, the county's deputy treasurer, John Wallace. And then a couple other police officers. They're working on the Illinois lead that Abel originated. Wallace was especially key because Wallace owned Wallace's Candy Kitchen. Catherine used to work, walk down to Wallace's Candy Kitchen and buy her candy there. And Wallace remembered watching Catherine grow up. He would bounce her on his knee. He had a very good relationship and could recognize her. Late June, early July of 1914, Wallace and Romine and another police officer are working this final clue. It leads them to a cemetery in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, Mount Hope Cemetery. They got the tip that more than a year ago, a body of a young girl was dropped off at this cemetery. This girl's body laid in the cemetery vault for weeks and weeks and weeks. Nobody came back to claim it. There were no markings on the old wooden box. The sexton of the cemetery who accepted the body did so without getting 
and collecting the appropriate paperwork. There was no death certificate. No coroner had given any indication of the cause of death of the little girl inside. There was no paperwork with this body. Sexton Drown was his name, Theodore Drown said that when he accepted that body, there were two men who dropped them off, that body off, said that they didn't have any money, didn't have the paperwork, but they would be back in just a few weeks to collect everything, get her buried, and make everything right, and they did not come back. Now, Champaign County Sheriff Davis was the point person that Wallace and Hanmore contacted. And Wallace and Hanmore brought a list of identifying factors of what would be in that buried box if it were Catherine. Sheriff Davis got the Champaign Champaign County coroner, and those two men exhumed that box, opened it up, took the identifying factors, compared them to the body in that box, and said the Catherine Winters mystery is over. We have found her body. And that was quoted in many, many newspapers. Identifiers included that some of the teeth in the corpse had, the secondary teeth had erupted. There was even mention of a gold front incisor. But most of the teeth were baby teeth. There was bruising, suspicious bruising on the face. The clothing matched the clothing description. It appeared to be, for all intents and purposes, Catherine Winters. Now, suddenly, we have another group of men coming from Newcastle to identify the body. This group is Mr. Dr. Hyatt. Dr. J.E. Hyatt had delivered Catherine when she was born. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of one time that any of my 11 children have ever seen the doctor again once they've been delivered. But okay, he was a professional. He was a doctor. Dr. J.E. Hyatt went with supposed neighbor, Mr. Barber. Now, if you look in a Newcastle City directory, Mr. Barber lived two blocks away from the Winners family, and yet he claims to be a close neighbor who had close contact and could identify Catherine. So we have Mr. Barber and Mr. Hyatt go to Illinois to identify the body. They also asked Doc Winters to come. Now, remember Doc Winters had been going around showing the film? Also, there had been so many quote-unquote Catherine sightings. Alabama, she popped up. She popped up in a convent in Tennessee. She popped up in Arkansas. Every time one of these little girls would happen to come forward and say, I'm Catherine Winters, Doc would take his little suitcase, go on the train, and get down there and say, yes, you're Catherine, or no, you're not Catherine. And of course, none of them ever were Catherine. For some reason, Dr. Hyatt and Mr. Barber could not persuade Doc Winters to come to the cemetery in Champaign-Urbana with them. Doc had already been on at least 10 to 13 excursions of this type, but he refused to go to Mount Hope Cemetery and see this one. So when Hyatt and Barber got there, they were joined by a man named Nicholas Larry. Nicholas Larry claimed that that body was his daughter, not Doc Winter's daughter. They all went back to take another look at the body. But now wait a minute. It wasn't the wooden box anymore. It was copper casket. And it wasn't as long. 
and the body inside had baby teeth. No incisors had erupted. There were other differences as well. But Nicholas Larry signed a sworn affidavit that that was his daughter. He did not have a death certificate, by the way. Dr. Hyatt swore that that was Catherine, and Mr. Barber swore that that was Catherine. Suddenly, the identification of the sheriff and the coroner from a Champaign-Urbana was thrown out like it didn't even happen. The Sheriff Davis, he was quoted in newspapers as saying he'd never seen a case like this before. And if you knew half of what I know, dot, 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 end of quote. And that's the last we hear of Sheriff Davis. Never quoted on the case again. Coroner Hanmore disappears. We don't hear from him anymore. He does not talk anymore. Thomas Romine We do not hear quotes from him any longer. The only one who continues to be adamant and in a shocked tone of voice, according to the quotes, is John Wallace, the Henry County Deputy Treasurer. He said, I don't understand what's going on. Don't know why. Cannot understand this whatsoever. Then the same thing that happened to the detectives before him happened to Wallace. The newspapers vilified them. They made fun of their accents. They made fun of Abel's quirky hats and his pipes. And they made fun of Wallace and said, well, the candy got to him. He's just gone off of the deep end in his old age or whatever. And that's what happened to the detectives who accused the Winters family. They were derided. They were derailed. They were made fun of. So... The Mount Hope Champaign-Urbana clue didn't quite end there. In December of 1914, that body, whatever body it was, whoever body that little girl truly was, it disappeared again. It was dug up and moved away. The dates in question, those records are missing from the Mount Hope Cemetery records. The internment records do not have any records for the dates in question that were involved in that exhumation of that body. They're gone. Later on, 1921, there's a letter written to the Newcastle newspapers. Being a former newspaper editor myself, I know that most newspapers will not print anonymous letters. However, this one passed somehow editorial triage and was printed anonymously anyway. This anonymous letter writer said that the body that was dug up at Mount Hope Cemetery, yes, was Catherine Winters. The detectives involved at that time should not have given up, but they did. And the letter writer said that now we'll never know what finally happened to Catherine's body. Now, my mother, Charlene Zorns Perry, she wrote a series of books, Haunted Henry County 1, 2, 3, then she passed away, and then my brother, sister-in-law, and I found notes for Haunted Henry County 4 in her bedroom, and that was the Catherine Winters story. So I went ahead and wrote that up. It was mom's theory that the letter writer was the same person who testified in the grand jury in October of 1913, that it was always said this person had a good reason for not being named. And if it were the same anonymous letter writer, 
the editors had to assume that this person had a good reason for not wanting his name to appear in the newspaper. So we need to couple this information with some other information that my mother discovered. In 1988 or so, mom did a whole lot of interviews of people that she tracked down who had been involved directly or indirectly with the Catherine Winter's disappearance. Mom interviewed little five-year-old Jane, who, of course, was in her late 70s, early 80s by the time mom interviewed her. But Jane told mom she recalled that day vividly and gave mom lots and lots of vital information about what happened that night, what went on. What you are about to hear is one of Lisa's mother's recording with Mildred Bales Polkjoy. Mildred lived across the street from the Winters, and she was eight years old at the time of Catherine's disappearance. Mildred recalls a conversation she had with Catherine's brother, Frankie. Well, I guess if I could locate it. Then you could get a lot of information. A lot of information that will tell you nothing like be having be having firsthand knowledge. Even though, you know. And you know, sometimes one thing kind of makes you remember another. Mm-hmm. So but now Frank, right. Frank, he he would talk to us about Catherine. Oh. I don't recall the conversations. But he, he um he would talk about Catherine. What was it, Joe? And he, the only thing that I can remember of Frank is saying about Catherine, the only thing that I can remember, and it sticks right in here, he said, now this is what, and I, maybe you think I'm making this up at my age, but I remember this. I can remember that much better than I can remember what happened yesterday. He sat there, mom and pop a great big dish pan of corn, and Mrs. Winters, her mother, old Mrs. Ritter, would come over, and she'd come, and I can still hear her. She tells her, <laughs> "That's where she laughed." And us kids just loved her. We'd sit there and listen to Grandma Ritter talk. But anyhow, Frank said, "The the last time I seen Catherine, he said we was at the at the table." Now, I don't know what meal it was. We were at the table, and he he said that he always sat on a stool. Now, I don't know for why, but he said that Catherine said something, and Bird slapped her, and she fell off of the chair. And he said, um, they made me get off of the stool, and made me go in the front room and they closed them sliding doors. And he said, that is the last time that I ever saw Catherine. Mom also interviewed a man named John Victor McShirley. John Victor McShirley was a Sulphur Springs resident who was married to a distant relative of a man named Al Sherry. Alvinus Sherry was the longest employee of the Big Four Railroads, I believe in history. I believe he was about 71 years employed by those folks. Mr. Sherry 
was at the Big Four Railway Station working between March 20th and March 24th of 1913. There were those who said that Mr. Sherry told them he inadvertently shipped out Catherine Winter's body on the Big Four Railroad. Mom interviewed John McShirley, this long-lost relative, and he confirmed that Mr. Sherry had some sort of written documentation of where he shipped Catherine's body to. Now, I don't know if it's a journal. I don't know if it's a diary. I don't know if it's a place that the train conductor writes, well, today we ship this package to whatever. Don't know what form it's in. But I know that at that time, I have all faith in mom's research and her interviewing skills that that was a true story. On the interview notes, it even said that John Victor McShirley said, and if you tell anybody I said it, I'll deny saying it. Well, mom interviewed other members of that family who also confirmed it. I know another reporter who interviewed yet another cousin in that family who confirmed it. It's not a rumor. Mom approached Henry County Prosecutor Malcolm Edwards and asked why we couldn't get the family to bring that evidence forward. In order to do that, you have to have living suspect. And of course, everyone had died by the late 1980s. Doc had died of alcoholism, acute alcoholism in 1940, I believe. Bird had died in 1953. Little brother Frankie had died also in the 50s out in California of acute alcoholism. And Cooper, Ross Cooper also had died by then. So there was no living suspect. Even if that family still has that written evidence, we can't persuade them to come forward with it. This song is titled Where Do Catherine Winters Go? Created by ZF and Sylvester Gorbett in 1914. Recreation by Emmy Award-winning composer Brent A. Allred and vocals performed by the great Alyssa Huff. Having seen 